lecture is taken from the graduate course Introduction to Charitable Planning at Texas Tech University. To download the PowerPoint slides for this lecture, or to take the online quiz for this lecture, or to find out more about the Graduate Certificate in Charitable Financial Planning at Texas Tech University, go to EncourageGenerosity.com. So let's talk about uh, using life insurance in charitable planning. Uh, and we're going to talk about three uh, different common uses of life insurance and charitable planning. And these uses are, uh, are the most common and, and they're very, very different. Okay, so um, th these are going to be um, completely different. And actually, as we go down the list, what I'll tell you is my personal opinion is this is sort of in descending order of usefulness. Okay? Wealth replacement is just a, a, an absolutely wonderful, fantastic, exciting way to use life insurance. Gifting existing policies is <clears throat> okay. It's fine if you want to do that. Uh, creating new policies for the charity can have lots of problems, um, although there, some people would suggest there are some opportunities there as well, um, uh, but we'll talk about it. Okay, so let's talk about the first one, which to me is the most exciting because it is the way that you can uh, write really big policies that, that uh, create really big benefits for clients. And so those are, that's a nice combination to, to do those two things. Okay, so we start with the basic concept. We've been looking at all these techniques through the course of the semester. Charitable planning techniques like charitable, uh, like charitable remainder trusts, charitable gift annuities, uh, giving remainder interest in harm, uh, homes and farms. All of these things can have wonderful tax results. They can have great income tax results. They can have great estate tax results. Uh, they can have great capital gains tax results. So that's all absolutely wonderful. There is one downside though. And the downside is for the person who's not going to get the inheritance. Because in all of these cases, ultimately, at the end of the time period or at the end of the donor's life, the money does not go to the heirs. The money goes to the charity. That's sort of the point. And so we have the person being left out in this process. Well, using life insurance for wealth replacement is all about dealing with that reality that the heir uh, or heirs get left out and actually uh, creating an opportunity to fulfill that desire as well as the charitable uh, desire. And that is through using insurance, and in particular, using strategies where those insurance proceeds pass without estate taxes and without income taxes to the, uh, to the heirs, uh, which is uh, a lot better than uh, receiving the original assets after Uncle Sam takes his uh, 55%, uh, or in some cases um, for with, uh, with particular levels of income uh, can be even up to 60%. Um, and j just, to, just to mention how that works um, or how that will work starting December 1, uh, the idea is that the top tax rate is 55%, but there is a range once you hit that 55% level at which the uh, marginal tax rate is actually 60% and then it goes back to 55%. The reason it does that is it basically wants the 55% to apply to every dollar of the estate. So it's not like your income taxes where the first part of it you only pay a, a small percentage and then the second part you pay a little bit bigger and then the third part you pay a little bit bigger. Well, it works that way, but then as you get, um, as, as you get to a larger size estate, 
they bump it up to 60% for a range so that you wind up paying 55% on every dollar. Um, so that's uh, starting January uh, 1. So we'll generally say 55% because that is uh, what you consider to be the normal tax rate, but there's actually a range where you could be paying 60% as they, uh, as they make it up to 55% uh, for the entire estate. Yeah. Good question. I don't have that statistic right at the top of uh, of my uh, of my head. Um, when it's a three million dollar level, it's a, it's a much smaller percentage, uh, certainly than when it's a one million dollar level. Um, but the question, how you know, what percentage of estates are above the one million dollar level? You know, I don't I, I don't know that. Um, but um, but that's something I'm trying to think if I've got that in any other slides. I know in 1995, mm -hmm. which is incredibly old data. Mm -hmm. uh, when the amount was $600,000, it was 1.4% of the state. 1.4%. So, so that'd be approximate 600000 million now. Yeah, yeah. Why is, why is life insurance tax-free? That's a dumb question. Are you talking about income tax or estate tax? Uh, income tax. Why is life insurance income tax-free? Mm, don't know. just is. Good lobbying. Why is it income tax-free? Yeah, I'm sure there's some good theory for why it is. Do you, do you think yeah, it'd ever not be? Because no. Because you got to protect the widow. Yeah, I think that's... Yeah, I mean, yeah. there's yeah. a social benefit to the uh, children and widow or widowers to have you know, uh, money. Yeah. Also, you, you know, you just lost a wage earner, mm -hmm. and so it's not really... It's not really a game. You don't you don't game because somebody dies and you mm -hmm. get, get paid. Sure. I think it's, you know I think most things like that are tax free. Like a personal injury, you get a lawsuit mm -hmm. award that's tax free. Oh, it mm -hmm. is. Yeah, because yeah. I mean, because it's not really income because so you lost something and you gain something else. Right. Uh, I would okay. say that. But isn't that, isn't that wrong? Like on punitive versus compensatory damages. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. Punitive I mean, so. damages are taxable. Yeah, so, that's that's. But you don't, but you don't lose something. The punitive tam damages are charged to somebody else to punish them, so you didn't you didn't lose anything. So they're not given to you to make you whole, so to I speak. I would say that most life insurance policies aren't creating great wealth, like over the whole, yeah. like on average. So, but to come back to your question. Um, if you want to know why they're estate tax-free, they are not estate tax-free. Life insurance is taxed, uh, gift and estate taxes. Now, we're going to learn a trick to prevent that from happening. But in general, um, and, and this, uh, you know, I mean, I've given seminars where I've had an insurance uh, agent stand up and say, well, no, that's, that's wrong, you know, it's not included in the estate because he's heard so often that life insurance is tax-free. Well, life insurance is income tax-free. It is not estate tax-free which means your million dollars, which may seem large to some people, all of a sudden gets really small when you realize, oh, you've got half-million-dollar policy. Well, you're halfway there uh, because the when death benefit's it, included in the estate. When would it be included in the estate? If always. Sure no, it's, it's always included in the estate uh, except for what we're going to talk about here in a minute. Yeah. Okay, so let's talk about estate tax law. And instead of taking that whole long course, I'll just give you one slide, okay? <laughs> Yeah, well, but now it's all going to be pretty much just <laughs> rehash, okay? Right, right. okay 
So, so here's, a state, here's a state tax law. Point number one, anything you own is taxable at death unless it goes to a spouse or a charity. Okay, there you go. That's a state tax law. Now, the exception to that, or not really an exception to it, it's an application of it, is point number two that we care about. If your life insurance, or in fact anything else, if your life insurance is owned by another person, then it is not taxable at your death. Okay? Another person could also be an irrevocable life insurance trust, which is treated for tax purposes as another person. Okay? It's a taxpayer. It fills out its own tax form every year. So that's the state tax law. If you own it at death, you're taxed on it, unless it goes to a spouse or a charity. Okay? That's the basic premise. So how do we keep life insurance from being taxed? Don't own it at death. What that means is you want somebody else to own it. It's still on your life, and it still pays off when you die, but you don't want to own it. Because if you own it, then it's in your estate and the whole death benefit's taxed. But if somebody else owns it, then it's not in your estate, even though it is something that is payable at your death. And then there's this minor exception here, which is if you actually have a life insurance policy that's in force, and then you give it to somebody else, you got to live for at least three years, otherwise it will come back into your estate. And so we don't want that to happen. That doesn't apply if you create it uh, originally owned by somebody else. Okay, so how does this work? Oh, my child disappeared. There it is. My child's back. Okay. Whew, lost my child there for a moment. I was moving these slides around, and I had to put something else in that slot in a later slide, and I forgot to delete that previous one. All right, so how do we make life insurance not taxable in the estate? Make sure that the person who dies doesn't own it. In this case, the parent does not own the policy, so it is not taxed in his estate. So what happens here? The parent uh, gives a policy to the child, or perhaps the uh, child uh, it, it goes ahead and is, uh, is the applicant and creates the policy. Either way, uh, it's actually better if they create the policy because then you don't have that three-year waiting rule. And then every year, the parent gives money to the child to pay for the premiums, and the child pays for the premiums. Okay? So what happens when the parent dies? Well, what happens when the parent dies is that this uh, life insurance policy the death benefit pays off, in this case it's going to the child. It is not taxable because it is not owned by the parent, who's the person who died. Okay? If the policy was owned by the parent, if the parent had any rights over it, had the authority to change beneficiaries or any, any you know, uh, ability to borrow money from it or anything like that, if the parent owns it or has any of those rights, then it's going to be in the parent's estate. If the parent doesn't own it, in this case the child owns it, when the parent dies, there are no estate taxes because the parent doesn't own it. Yes. What, what about if you have a husband and wife and mm -hmm. they own each other's policy? Well, so what about if we have a husband and wife and they own each other's policy? Um, the issue there is that if it's a husband and wife, we don't care about estate taxes in that scenario because they can pass money back and forth right. um, uh, in, in, in between each other. So that's usually not what we wind up doing. Um, because if it, um, so let's say that the goal is to get the money to the kids, okay? If you have husband owns policy on wife's life, wife owns policy on husband's life, let's say husband dies first, because that's what always happens, uh, then, because um, they're men and men die first. 
um, then what happens is, okay, policy pays off, but normally that policy is going to pay off to the, uh, to the wife, in which case it doesn't really matter who owns the policy because it's going, going to the spouse. Um, but now I guess you, know, you could have that it paid off to the, to the children, um, but that's, uh, that's normally not how people set up well, plans. Yeah, right. Oh, go ahead. But then you have, a, you have a, that, the Goodman Doctrine or the Unholy Trinity. Oh, okay. Because then it, it's, considered, it's considered a gift. Husband dies, uh-huh. and then wife, wife owns the policy but names the kids uh-huh. a, a kid. Then it's taxed as a gift uh-huh. at, at the point that husband dies, a gift from wife to kids. Uh-huh. So it's a, it's a, there's a gift oh, tax. Right. Because they right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, so that's another, I just know I haven't seen them. And so, yeah. So you got both things uh, going on there because she's owning it, but it's not, uh, she's not the beneficiary. Unlike here where we've got a child owning it. So when that child makes payments, he's not making a gift to anybody else because he's making payments on a policy that he's going to get the benefit from. So, yeah. Right, so the question is, are there gift taxes when we do this thing? And the answer is yes, but we do have our $13,000 a year exclusion. So, you know, if we just have one and one, then that's only $13,000 a year. But if we've got a married couple, now it's 26000 Maybe the child uh, also has a spouse, now we're 54000 Maybe they got two kids with spouses, now we're 108000 So it, So it is, it is taxable but you can use that $13,000 a year um, uh, exemption on it. So that's, that's usually how you, how you wind up uh, doing it. You know, if you put some grandkids on there, you can easily be transferring a couple hundred thousand dollars a, a year without gift taxes, yes. How would you, um, I'm kind of, well, I guess it wouldn't matter, but my, my thought is that if you have a husband and a wife and you're doing this and then the spouse that you're doing this program through dies first, mm-hmm. Then the, the kids get a big inheritance before mom dies. But I guess mm-hmm. that's okay. Mm-hmm. Mom still gets the estate, I guess. Right. So if you have it set up this way, then you do have this reality that that's you know that that's what winds up happening. You might uh, have that inheritance uh, being received ahead of time. So what you might want to do is instead of just having them own it directly, you might want to set up some rules for it. And the way you would set up some rules for it is you would set up a trust that gives instructions on, okay, you know, maybe it's going to go directly to the kids or maybe we're going to set it aside for the kids, but we're going to give some rights uh, for the surviving uh, spouse to get into it if she needs it for health, education, maintenance, support, something like that. Uh, so that we, we give enough rights to the surviving spouse so she can get into it if she needs it, but not enough that it's going to be taxable in her estate. And so that would be how you would deal with that situation where you'd say, okay, if we're not using a second-to-die policy where it's you know, after both husband and wife dies, if we're using a first-to-die uh, first policy or just single-life policy, then we probably want to put some instructions with it. We don't have to. We could just say, you know, we could just say hey, it all goes to the, to, to the child in cash, but we could put some instructions on it and, uh, and say where it's going to wind up going. Um, and putting instructions on it is basically putting a trust on it. How much does it cost to write an islet? How much does it cost to to, uh, to write an islet? Um, you know, it depends on sort of how creative you want to get. Uh, it's it's uh, sort of like the old uh, idea of how much does a house cost. Well, I can I can get you a house that's really cheap, 
um, I'll help you take the wheels off of it when you move into it too. You know, it, it kind of depends on what, what you uh, want. But these, these things can be fairly standardized, especially if all they're doing is just holding this life insurance policy and then paying out to, to, to kids in a big lump sum. Um, you know, there's some standard language on how you deal with the uh, estate um, uh, settlement process uh, when you're um, uh, when you're dealing with uh, with uh, particular assets. If you want to keep particular assets and things like that, um, but but you you can get these fairly inexpensive, fairly standardized. Um, I don't know. You have any thoughts on that? On I, I always charge five hundred. I, I like yeah. the flat rate things like yeah because I. But, right. no, but I, I charge 500 Yeah, so, yeah, it seems fairly reasonable. So, okay. so, so this is the same tax concept. The idea here, if we have the child on the policy, the idea here, we have this trust who's treated as a taxpayer on the policy. It's the same basic concept. Uh, the, the, there are some additional things you can do with the trust. You can put on instructions on how it's to be used. You can set it up so it has multiple beneficiaries. Uh, and um, you know you can even do things like if there's a surviving spouse, allow the surviving spouse the ability to get in to it in case of emergency, um, but uh, uh, but not have it taxed in the uh, surviving spouse's estate. So there's lots of different things you can do with a life insurance trust. That um, and also the other thing is that um, you can uh, uh, you can set more rules. The the parent can write out all the rules, and you can't change the rules. One of the things about these islet trusts is that they are, the first I stands for irrevocable. So once the parent sets up the rules, you know, the rules are the rules, uh, and, they, uh, and, and, they don't, uh, and they don't change. Now, if the parent decides that doesn't want those set of rules anymore, can't change the islet, but you can stop, you can stop making premium payments on the life insurance, and if it's something that you, uh, that if the parent's still healthy and can qualify for a replacement policy, then you can set up another one if you wanted to. Okay, so this is the basic idea, uh, and this is how they become uh, non-taxable. Now, how does this relate to the charitable planning we've been talking about? Well, the idea is that the parent can use some of these benefits that come from like a charitable gift annuity or a charitable remainder trust and use some of those benefits instead of consuming them, use them to pay for life insurance. It's the idea that uh, the, the, it's the idea that the uh, parent or the individual can now not only make that charitable gift, but take some of those benefits that come, like the income or the tax deduction, and use some of them to buy a life insurance policy so that not only is the charity happy, but the, uh, but the heirs are happy as well. Uh, so, for example, let's say you have a charitable remainder trust, and that thing's kicking off income every year. We'll just take a slice of that income. You can use some of it, but some of it, set it aside for uh, this uh, irrevocable life insurance trust. And uh, that way, uh, at death, even though everything in that charitable remainder trust is going to charity at death, um, there'll be this nice uh, life insurance policy that can come to the heirs uh, tax-free. Uh, okay, so the child gets a tax-free inheritance instead of losing up to 55% in estate taxes. And so if you're at a high tax rate, that's what makes these things work really well. The benefits are so great because of the taxes you're avoiding that you can actually have circumstances where the heirs wind up in just as good of a situation uh, even though there was a charitable gift made than they would have been if there were no charitable gift made. So here's a way of thinking of it. 
Uh, it's sort of the idea that we're giving different kinds of, of presents, different kinds of inheritances to different groups. We give the taxable inheritance to charity because there's a tax deduction for it. We don't, we don't get charged taxes on that. And we create income to then purchase a non-taxable inheritance, which is our insurance, uh, that's uh, island-owned insurance, that we give to children. So it's the idea of giving the right things to the right uh, recipients. And that basic concept is what makes this so powerful from a, from a tax perspective. Okay, as I mentioned before, as, as was brought up, when you do give that money over to pay premiums, that is a gift. It is a taxable gift because you're giving a benefit. Uh, in the original case, we were giving it directly to the child. Okay. And as I mentioned before, right now we've got the $13,000 year annual exclusion, uh, and the, um, uh, but you multiply that times the number of beneficiaries and then times the number of donors, in case you have a married couple. And so, for example, if you have two parents giving to two children with their spouses and each child has two children, uh, at that point you can transfer $208,000 a year uh, uh, is, uh, without uh, generating any, any uh, gift taxes. Uh, so, obviously, policies that have an annual premium of over $200,000 a year are, are pretty massive size policies. So, the, the idea is you can do a lot uh, with this level of power. Uh, now, this isn't really an estate planning course, but uh, when we're using an eyelet, we have to go through something called crummy powers that is, uh, is what converts this into a present interest gift. And basically what that does is, uh, is each of the beneficiaries uh, we'll get a letter each year saying, hey, you've got X number of, of days and you can uh, take $13,000 if you request it. If you don't request it, then it's going into this life insurance trust. And of course, you tell them all, don't request it or I will never give it to you again and I will cut you out of my inheritance. And so they don't request it. I mean, you don't write that down. You just tell them that. And then, uh, uh, and then they let it go back into the trust because ultimately they're going to be a beneficiary from it. So this is ultimately a good thing for them to do, not, not to request it. And you wind up with the exact same tax treatment uh, that you would have gotten if you were doing this, if you were giving it directly to the person. So it's just a w way to sort of get around that. But this is the same, it's the same concept, it works the same way. Uh, we do just a couple more things when we're doing that uh, irrevocable life insurance trust. Okay, so let's take an example just to kind of give you a feel for the potential here. Not going to be true in every single case. People don't always want to do this in every single case, but, but let's take an example. You have a client who wants to sell a million-dollar non-income producing asset. We'll just call it zero basis so we can keep the calculation simple. Uh, it's not income producing, so we want to sell it, and we want to convert it to income producing property, right? Reasonable thing to do. Gonna, we have this risk of the big capital gains tax, uh, and what I want to do is I want to spend the interest income of 5%. We'll just assume everything earns 5%. We'll assume that all the rates are 5% while leaving principal for heirs. Person's combined state and federal tax rates are top all the way through, and assuming we're in a state that, that charges uh, some additional um, uh, capital gains and income tax as well. So let's, let's look at an example. On this side, we have no charitable planning. Just take that million-dollar asset. What do you do? You sell it, okay? And then you pay your capital gains tax. And here we're maxing out the state and federal rates. Uh, and so what are we left with? Well, we're left with $40,000 a year. Why? Because you got $800,000 left after the sale and you're making a 5% return. Client uses 
uh, $40,000 a year. That's the income off of that $800,000 a year. What do the heirs get? Well, client uses that until she dies, and then the heirs get the $800,000 because she's never invading principal. She's just using the interest. However, if she's at the top tax rate for that particular asset, the heirs are actually only going to get $360,000 instead of $800,000 because 55% of the asset goes away for, from estate taxes. So this is what happens with the straightforward, no planning, I'm just going to take it, sell it, take the income off of it, and then leave it to the heirs when I die. Okay? Now, we take the same situation and we use charitable remainder trust uh, and an islet. Okay, we're going to combine. This is where things get powerful. To, to my way of thinking, the, uh, the single most powerful technique in all of charitable planning is the crut plus the islet okay? and from a tax perspective, and, and here's an example of why. You take that same million-dollar asset, you put it into a charitable remainder unit trust to a crut. And again, we're going to put it in a 5% crut. We're just going to assume everything earns 5% a year uh, to keep things simple. Right? So what happens that that crut pays out 5% of a million or $50,000 a year. The crut's also going to generate a charitable tax, tax deduction of $300,000. Uh, now that's assuming the person has about a 25-year life expectancy. Uh, and uh, a charitable tax deduction of $300,000 at the tax rate, uh, the top tax rate, that's worth about $120,000 in cash. Okay. So the deduction is $300,000, but it's worth $120,000 in cash because we multiply it times the tax rate. Uh, now what the client does with that, the client takes that $120,000, which is what that tax deduction is worth. Client takes that tax deduction, puts it into... Uh, the islet. Client also takes 10 grand of her income every year, puts that into the islet. Okay? So basically, the client has taken everything above this $40,000 a year that she was going to get anyway and buying life insurance with it and stuffing it into the islet. That amount of life, that $120,000 initially uh, and uh, $10,000 annually. Um, should pretty comfortably, if somebody's got a 25-year life expectancy, uh, buy a $400,000 islet-owned policy. Again, this is assuming that interest rates are running at 5%. So what's the net result? Well, the net result is the client uses $40,000 a year. We're generating $50,000 a year because we've got a million-dollar asset because it didn't get cut, up, cut uh, down by the capital gains tax. Client's using $40,000 a year just like she would have been over here. The $10,000 a year is just getting the stuff into the islet to pay for that life insurance. What do the heirs get? Well, the heirs get that life insurance policy, but because it's coming through the islet, it is tax-free. Uh, so they get a $400,000 um, net uh, benefit instead of this $360,000 net benefit. Oh, and by the way, charity gets a million dollars. Now... Not all cases, you know, we're using the highest tax rates here, the most extreme example, but the point is to show you the power of the technique. And the power of the technique is you can have a client make a million dollar gift at death to charity and the heirs get more than if she hadn't made the million dollar gift at death to charity. Okay? That's to give you the sense of the power of the technique. Now, having said that, it is still not a good idea to set up charitable plans for people that are not charitably inclined. Okay? I mean, I've given you an extreme example where in this case, 
actually the heirs wind up better than um, uh, th than they would have if no charitable gift was made. The, the point is just to show you the extreme power that can happen when you co start combining these techniques. Uh, the point is not to go out and suggest charitable plans to people who don't care at all about charity. But if you have somebody who does care about charity, I mean, this is a pretty powerful thing to say, you can leave a million dollars to charity and your kids get more than they would have if you didn't do any of this planning. So th that's why I think that this combination of techniques is the most, the, the most tax-advantaged thing uh, that you can do in, in charitable planning. Okay, comments, questions on that? All right. The $10,000, is that coming from the 50 that you're giving? Yes. Okay. Yeah. The 120 the is the, uh, if we've got somebody who's paying income taxes at 40%, they've got state income taxes, they've got federal income taxes, they get a deduction of $300,000. Okay. So how much less taxes do they have to pay because they had the $300,000 deduction? Well, uh, at whatever point they can take that, depending on how much their income is, um, they get to pay $120,000 less in taxes because of that deduction. So that's kind of the cash value of that deduction. That's the money she doesn't have to pay out of pocket in taxes that she would have had to pay uh, if she didn't have the deduction. Okay, so that's where that, that $120,000 comes from. Because basically, the charitable remainder unit trust, it gives you two things. It gives you an upfront deduction, and it gives you... Uh, lifetime income on the asset without having to pay capital gains tax. So you take both of those benefits um, and you basically stuff it into the islet and create the life insurance that creates tax-free uh, um, um, uh, inheritance for the heirs. Okay. Yeah. Of course, kind of what Ben's saying, then you got to convince your client that a penny saved is a penny earned for that you know, when you have clients with this kind of wealth, they pretty much get that idea because they're used to writing big checks to the IRS. And if you say, okay, your check will be $120,000 less this year, and so you write the check to the islet, not to the IRS, probably that's not going to be a, a hurdle at this level. And, and, of course, again, the reason that these numbers are so extreme is because these percentages are so extreme. You know, And if you're dealing with clients, is that clients that are lower down then the percentages are not as extreme, but you still are getting amazing tax advantages if you have a client that wants to do both things. Yeah. Can the donor also give the ILEC, um, not the son, you said the, the donor owned it, mm -hmm. can you give the ILEC and get more tax deductions on it? Um, give the ILEC to whom? Well, so the whole purpose of an islet is to create assets that are not taxable in the estate. You would not, uh, coming back to um, this concept, you would not do the opposite of this, which is to take the non-taxable inheritance and give it to a charity. That doesn't make any sense. You take taxable inheritance and give it to charity because we don't care that it's taxable because it's exempt organization, right? So, no, you wouldn't combine those two things. You wouldn't go to the trouble of creating something that's non-taxable uh, in your state and then giving it to a charity, in which case it was going to get deducted anyway. Okay? Okay. Okay, just another example. This is a, a more simple example, not using a CRT, 
but gives you the same basic uh, thought uh, on the cheap. <clears throat> Here's John, age 59. He owns $100,000 of farmland. He owns a lot of stuff, but among that stuff is $100,000 farmland, which he would like to use for the rest of his life and then leave to charity. But he also wants to benefit his heirs. Uh, again, we're going to put him at top rates. Uh, what can we do here outside of a CRT? Well, you know, we could go back to this old technique of giving the remainder interest in the land to charity. What does that do? It creates a deduction uh, a, a, at the current uh, 7520 rate that gives them a deduction of 65,553. Uh, that deduction is worth $26,000, a little over. He can take that $26,000 and purchase a paid-up policy of about $50,000. So what happens? We haven't used a, a charitable remainder trust. We've simply used a uh, um, uh, we've simply used a, uh, uh, a, a deed with a life estate and remainder interest. Uh, and, uh, you know, we don't have to use an islet. We could have the, the child own the policy directly uh, and just uh, um, uh, gift that money over, take a couple years maybe, gift it over. So we're not, we're not, doing, anything, we're not doing any documents here, okay? This is no CRT. This is no islet. This is essentially just a, a, a remainder deed that we file at the Recorder of Deeds office. And, a, um, uh, and we have a son who owns a policy, and you give him cash, and he pays the, the, uh, uh, the uh, premiums on it. What happens is John gets to keep the lifetime use of his farm, which he wanted. The charity gets the farm at death, uh, which is one of his goals. And the heirs get $50,000 tax-free, which, by the way, is more than getting $100,000 and having to pay 55% estate taxes on it. Okay. So this is the same kind of concept. Here we're not using the documents. Uh, we're, we're, we're keeping it simple, but it's the same idea. Uh, and the idea is you take the benefit that's provided by the charitable gift and you use it to buy tax-free uh, life insurance policy. Now, of course, the, if you remember from several weeks back, the fact that we have a very low 75-20 rate is the reason why when he gives this remainder interest in his farm, his $100,000 farm land, it's the reason why he gets this massive deduction of 65,553. So you could say, okay, well, that's great, but when interest rates sort of get back into normal, that's not really going to be uh, maybe a technique that's still available, but I would argue that it's still going to be available because what happens is as your interest rates rise, your deduction goes down, but the price of your paid-up policy goes uh, down as well. Because, I mean, all a paid-up policy is is the life insurance company is saying, okay, well, we're going to take this money, sock it away. This person uh, or this pool of people on average are going to live this long. And so what, what return are we going to get in the meantime to be able to pay this off as interest rates go up? The cost of a $50,000 paid-up policy is going to go down. Um, and, and so I think this is a uh, technique that will um, remain valid uh, even in different interest rate environments. Uh, so just, in this case, the insurance would have to be in an islet too, right? Uh, it, it could be in an islet, or if you didn't want to fool with that, you could just uh, have, the, uh, have the child himself own the life insurance policy. Somebody else has to own it. You can have a real person own it, or you can create an artificial person. The artificial person has to follow the rules you set up, um, but uh, you do have to set it up. And then, you know, you've got to file annual tax returns, things like that.
Okay. All right, so that's the basic deal. Wealth replacement through islet life insurance or insurance owned by, a, uh, by an heir creates a state tax-free inheritance for family members and allows for charitable giving. So I think that's a pretty powerful technique. Let's talk about what else we can do with life insurance that is less powerful, but still good to know. Okay? This is something that should be really, really simple, and it's not. Um, it's not that it's complex. Well, it's a little complex. It's that the answer to most things is uh, we don't really know. And that's really annoying. I'll tell you what I mean here in a minute. Okay, so let's talk about giving existing life insurance policies to charity. I got a life insurance policy. Why do I want to get it, give it to charity? Well, you know, maybe I bought too much for, uh, for what I really need. Or, or maybe I bought enough for what I needed then, but I don't need it anymore. You know, maybe I bought this for children who are no longer dependent, so I'm not worried about it. Maybe it's an outdated business buy-sell agreement. Um, maybe I don't need the, the cash value. There's lots of reasons why I might not want the policy anymore, and I might want to give it to charity. Okay? Now, here's when I present to you sort of a reasonable approximation of reality. Um, as we get into some specifics, we'll find that reality is actually a, a bit more vague. That's why I've got these little approximation symbols here. Okay. All right, so how much is it worth? I'm given a life insurance policy. I need to know how much to deduct. How much is it worth? Well, it's lesser of fair market value or basis. Well, what's that mean? Well, fair market value is kind of probably about cash value. Okay? Approximately. Maybe. We think. That's what I'm going to say for this slide anyway. Or, uh, also, we've got to look at the donor's basis. And the donor's basis is probably, or at least used to be, the premiums that they had paid. Okay? So, approximately that for purposes of this slide before we get to the next slide. Uh, that is for the normal policy that's in place. There are some special rules that actually are more simple um, uh, once we get into it for two special kinds of policies. There's a newly issued policy, uh, and if it's a brand new policy, you just use the first premium paid for the fair market value. How, how much is it? Well, what did you just pay for it? You know, it's brand new. I give it to a charity. I, I just started it you know, yesterday. What's it worth? Well, what would you pay for it yesterday? Well, that's what it's worth. Okay. And then there's a paid-up policy. Paid-up policy, you use replacement policy uh, for fair market value. How much would it cost to give these people the same policy right now? Um, there are, in fact, very, very few truly paid-up policies. There are policies that suggest that if they earn a certain interest rate over the next few years, that there will be no more premiums due. That's not the same thing. Paid-up policy is paid up, doesn't matter what happens to interest rates, there's no returns, it's done. It's a completed commitment. There's actually not too many of those, those creatures running around, but if you do run into one, it is um, what it would take to buy another one for that person at that particular time. Okay, so this, is, this, this first line is an approximation of kind of what we've perceived the world to be for some time. Okay, here's where things get um, uh, a little messy, and these are fairly recent changes. The old rule is that basis is... Premiums paid, and of course I have to kick off any refunds I got back or any loans that I made. So the old rule was fairly simple. What is your basis in the policy? 
Well, your basis is the what you paid for it, right? And if I paid $1,000 a year for my premium, then if I've been paying it for 10 years, I've got a $10,000 basis. Simple. Uh, very straightforward. Uh, last year, we got a new revenue ruling that says, no, we don't like that. Revenue ruling is when the IRS comes out and says, this is the, this is the way that things are going to be from here on until you get a court to tell us we're wrong. Revenue ruling 2009-13 reduces basis by the cost of insurance protection that was enjoyed by the policyholder. So the idea is that the IRS comes along and says, you know that idea about, oh, well, you know, you wrote a $1,000 premium payment for 10 years and you think your basis is $10,000? Well, not really. Because you actually got the, the enjoyment, the pleasure of knowing that if you were to die, your family would be protected. And that is worth something. And that's something that you got and you used. In fact, you used it up, right? You got to use a whole 10 years worth of the pleasure of a life insurance policy. And so we are not going to allow you to say that all the premiums you paid are part of your basis. Now, what does that mean if it's a term policy? It means there's no such thing as basis in a term policy except for the unused part of the most recent premium. Uh, okay, when did you pay your last check and that was for a year? Well, how many months are left in that year? That's the only basis in that policy. Okay, Because basically what they're saying is the term component that you pay in any premium is not part of your basis. It's not part of what you're paying for whatever residual value you have. <laughs> we used to do a like a 1035 tax free exchange between life insurance policies mm -hmm. uh, at the company. Yeah, I used to be an officer of a life insurance company and um, uh, first colony life, and we used to let people do a um, 1035 exchange for their term policies. Uh huh. And um, you know, there's no cash value that comes in, but we right. exchange it for another policy, and we take the basis. You know, we take the basis of the old term policy. Mm -hmm. And we would add that to the basis in the new policy in right. addition to the premiums. And then we'd, we'd do uh, lots of other things. That's just, just too bad. It's yeah. And I'll tell you what, uh, th this, is, this is an unusual circumstance we're in right now. This comes out last year. And they say cost of insurance, not in your basis. And you would think that since this came out last year, then all of these sort of you know, folks that write things on how you value these and, and how you would value a gift come out and say, okay, this is what we're doing now is this, because this is the revenue ruling. But there's all this hesitation. People are questioning this. People are like, I'm waiting for, I don't like it, and I, maybe we'll get a court case to overturn it and all this sort of thing. So it's kind of this... Uh, yeah, that revenue ruling's there. Yeah, maybe it'll go away with a court case. We don't, no, we don't like it. Basically, we don't like this being uh, the the reality. Um, however, my personal opinion is is not going to get overturned. The, the argument that I've heard is, well, this is like this is like saying that your basis in the home that you bought should be reduced by the rental value of your home every year. Exactly. 
and 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 my and what I'm saying is that is exactly right. That is exactly the 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 right argument. The home is the only asset that gives that's given special privileges like that, where you can live in a home and take the value of that rent and not pay any taxes on it. So I don't think that privilege applies to assets in general, um, and uh, so because of that. Um, You don't think so? Okay. Well, part of it's just that I'd have to relearn everything. And so well, that would be annoying. Well, and that's why nobody's like, you know, I'm like, okay, well, where's all the stuff saying, okay, we value this way now, and it's not there because people are really hesitant about, I don't know, this is going to fly. Now, clearly, when the IRS comes out with the revenue ruling, they're saying this is the way it is, you know, period, suck it up. Um, there are some people that will say, well, and they cite some, at least for insurance, they, in the revenue ruling, they cite some cases that say this is the way you ought to treat it. Um, but there is that same hesitation there by a lot of, a lot of folks. And so that's why it gets a little bit messy. That's, yeah. Well, here's the thing. In the, in the revenue ruling, for their term policy example, they used a 20-year level premium. And they said, eight years in, too bad, you've had enjoyment for the first eight years, no basis. <laughs> they, I mean, that was their example, was a level premium. Uh, in which case, you know, obviously you're saying, well, wait a second here. You know, I was not just getting the enjoyment. I was paying a lot so that it would stay flat rate. You see, if, if that's the <laughs> law, then you think of about 20 ways to use that revenue really to harm them. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> to, to, sh to say that there's no basis in a, in a term policy. Right, right, right. Then I would say, oh, well, then, okay, let's look at uh, split dollar or reverse split. Yeah, but most of that, all the split dollar stuff, I thought got killed with the 2006 uh, Pension Protection Act. So that's sort of separately wiped out. All well, you've, got the, you've got the table 2001. Uh-huh. I mean, I don't, I don't think you say split dollar was killed by that. I could, I think On the charitable side, it was. I put it that way. Charitable split dollar. But um, uh, I think they're still doing a lot of private split dollar. Yeah. You know? uh -huh. yeah no, I'm in on the charitable side. It pretty much killed all the charitable split dollar stuff. So um, here's another reason why people are hesitant about this revenue ruling. <laughs> um, now, Universal life policies say, okay, what's your cost of insurance? A lot of times that gets reported to the policyholder. 
This is sort of your investment part. This is your cost of insurance part. Okay, so there we can kind of do that. But your traditional whole life policies, it usually doesn't exist. That's not a number that you get. Cost of insurance is not a number that you get. It's not a number the insurance company provides to you necessarily. So, so what do you do? You have this whole life policy, and they're saying, well, you got your basis, you have to subtract this cost of insurance. How much is it? And basically, the finest experts in the world are going like, well, we're hoping to get some guidance on that from the IRS at some point because uh, they haven't told us how to deal with that. And then for term insurance, cost of insurance is the premium. And that is, uh, and the example they used was the uh, level, uh, level premium term. We, we used to, we used to uh, every insurance company that had any universal life policy uh -huh. would invent a term insurance policy that they never sold any of. Right. Okay? Mm -hmm. uh, it was our PS58 alternative term right. price. And what we do is we strip out all of the costs and we make it really cheap. We'd publish it, make it available to everyone, mm -hmm. but we'd load it full of, uh, of, of garbage that nobody would want. Mm -hmm. And then we would say, okay, here's, the, here's what the cost of insurance is, so we can mm -hmm. subtract this out. And, and the old rules would let you use the PS58 rates mm -hmm. um, uh, to do that. I, I, if this happens, everybody will be back to that game. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, that, that was a fun game to play, but, uh, but uh, <laughs> it's, a, it's a silly game. <laughs> so the... the uh, the angst that you hear here is the angst of all essentially professional advisors in the field right now. Of they're, they're not just ready to swallow this revenue ruling and say, okay, that's what we're doing. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, there, yeah, there's no way the insurance lobby is going to let that. <laughs> so, there we go. There we go. Well, we can get it overturned next session. Things are, uh, th yeah, th yeah, there'll be a whole lot of legislation being produced next session. Yeah. Yes, yes. That's right. Yeah, we've got two houses that now hate each other, so they're going to be agreeing on lots, I'm sure. Yeah, I'm sure we'll lot though. Which is actually kind of a good thing, but that's just me. Okay, so that is, that is the issue there. Um, here's another thing that's messing up some of the old rules. The old rule, and this still works, right? You can still do this is that fair market value, use this thing called interpolated terminal reserve. There's about 15 different ways to calculate it, and we're not going to get into that, but you can just ask the insurance company for it, and they'll give you their number, their version of it. Um, and there's a lot of other numbers that are related to it, but it's something like cash value. Uh, and unused part of last premium, so you paid something six months ago, you got six more months left of it. So that, that gets added in, and you subtract any loans. That, that's the standard approach to fair market value. That still works. What's throwing a wrench into things now is when these rules were written, this thing didn't exist. And by this thing, I mean the life settlement market, which is a secondary market that you can go to, and you can say, hey, secondary market, um, I've got this uh, life insurance policy, uh, and uh, I'm old or I'm sick, and uh, the insurance company only wants to give me standard cash value for it, but you can go ahead and take a whole health exam on me, and you can make your estimation as to how long I'm going to live, and then you can buy this policy from me, and you pay the premiums, 
basically making the, uh, the bet as to how long I'm going to live. Okay, so this life settlement market has, uh, within the last few years, has been established, become very robust, then maybe slightly less robust when some of the calculations were off. But basically, there is a secondary market now for life insurance policies, in particular life insurance policies that aren't that far from, uh, from paying off. Okay? The, uh, um, uh, th this is something that the actual insurance companies can't do on their cash value. They can't say, well, take a, he a health exam, then we'll tell you how much cash value we'll give. But in the life settlement market, it can. And so this is sort of an un another unsettled question. If you have something that you get a, a, an offer for, for a million dollars in the life settlement market, but the old rule says, well, fair market value is $10,000, which is my cash value, you know, which is it? And if I want to ignore this one, can I ignore this one and use this one? And if I want to use this one, can I go out and get this one and use this one? And so that's sort of an unsettled question of how do we deal with, because this was created because there was no real market, okay? It's only one buyer, which is the original insurance company. So we create this instead of a market. Now we've got a real market for some cases, and how do we deal with that? So this whole thing of how much is the insurance policy worth is kind of a mess right now. Yeah, so like the viatical yeah, settlements, yeah, same, same basic concept. Hmm? Okay. So it's a little bit of a, of a mess at the moment. Now back to this. Just a reminder, this is a property gift. And if you're giving a policy worth more than $5,000, any property gifts worth more than $5,000, we've got to have all this stuff for. Okay? This, is not public, this is not cash. This is not a publicly traded security, which means we've got to have all this stuff to document the gift, which includes that. So the answer to what is your policy worth is, well, you've got to get a qualified appraisal. And so you push it off to somebody else to make a call on these things, and then you deduct it, and you say, look, IRS, I don't know anything about all this, but you've got to get a qualified appraisal anyway. And so basically that's the uh, person who has to make the call on what's the value of this thing with all of this stuff in flux. And that's ultimately what the donor gets to deduct. The frustrating part is... Since the real answer is in many cases we don't know what the deduction is going to be, it's kind of hard to um, you know, make presentations and suggestions and things like that. If you say, oh, well, once we get a qualified appraisal, we're, we will know. And then you know, do you find an appraiser who says, no, I'm not going to follow this revenue ruling. Yes, I am going to follow it, you know, all that sort of thing. It's still kind of a mess. Uh, you, you, by the way, when you're going out to get an appraisal, you cannot get the appraisal from the insurance company itself. Uh, you cannot get the appraisal from the agent that sold you the policy. Those are both parties to the transaction, and they're excluded from creating this appraisal. Um, so you have, actually have to get an independent appraiser who just appraises life insurance policies. Um, let me do this. This is the one thing you don't want to do in this category. Okay. Do not donate a policy with outstanding loans. Uh, the tax rules have been set up perhaps inadvertently, but still the way that they read creates a very bad result for doing this. And this is because of 
legislation from 2006 that was intended to attack charitable, charitable split dollar, which was kind of a scheme where the charities really didn't wind up getting much, but there's a whole lot of benefit to other people. Uh, and so because of that, uh, even though this is what we'd normally call this a bargain sale, you know, like we looked at bargain sales when, um, you know, I give a, uh, uh, I give a, a property or real estate with a loan on it, um, to uh, get a charitable gift annuity in exchange, or I um, uh, give property that's worth a million dollars and I only take $400,000 for it. Okay, so the same idea. I'm giving you the policy, but I also have these loans I don't have to pay back anymore. So it's sort of a trade. But under the new charitable split dollar rules, the deduction is completely lost. Basically, if there's any benefit coming back to that person, then forget it, we're not letting you deduct anything. Uh, and that was to curb the abuses of charitable split dollar, which we won't get into right now, but the point is don't give a policy that has an outstanding loan. Because what's going to happen is you're going to get taxed as ordinary income for any amount of the loan. Now you get to subtract some of the basis, and it's the same basis calculation we looked at bargain sales before about a month ago. But well, essentially, the result of it is you take this policy, and even if it's a little bitty loan, you take this policy that has good cash value, high cash value, and a little bitty loan, and you give it to charity, two things happen. One, you get no deduction. Okay? Two, you get to report income tax, ordinary income, for the loan amount. Okay, that's bad. That is not good. That person has made a gift, and all they've gotten for it is they've gotten to pay more taxes. Okay? Don't do that. Right? So we'll end this section. If all of that didn't sink in, this slide, don't do that. Bad idea. Uh, we'll, take a, we'll take our uh, break here and we'll come back and finish this up. Okay, just to finish up this section where we're talking about um, giving an existing policy with value, uh, what does the charity do with the policy once it gets it? Most charities, honestly, they just cash it in. They just take the cash value. Now, there are some charities that are a bit more sophisticated about it, uh, and they might do some other things. Uh, but basically, there's, there's two different approaches. One is, thanks for the policy, cash it in the next day, spend it. The other is, thanks for the policy, oh, did you want to keep paying premiums on it? Oh, okay, well, we'll hold it for you then. Um, because each time you pay a premium, then it's, it's a deduction. Uh, but that's only if the donor says, you know, here's a policy and I'm going to keep paying premiums on it. Uh, it would be possible for the charity to pay premiums from the charity's fund. Now, why would you do this? Well, you'd really only do this in a case where you've got somebody who is, um, has health problems uh, or is, uh, um, is uh, um, actuarially not expected to live that long and it may be that you get more value out of it by going ahead and paying it until death. Uh, and then finally, we've got this option, again, for, uh, for an older uh, um, insured or one who is in poor health, is to sell it in the life settlement market. Um, and that, that may actually create some, some uh, questions or some problems. The donor would have to be okay. I think it would be a good idea to make sure the donor is okay with that from the beginning. To begin with, you need to get health information from the donor. And second, the donor may not be comfortable with some unknown entity having an interest in their demise. Okay, this is the third thing, and this is attempted to be sold a lot. I am not a big fan, 
but I will tell you about the advantages of, uh, of this, um, advantages uh, of creating new policies strictly to be owned by the, uh, the charity. Uh, so how's it work? A donor applies for a new policy with the charity as the owner beneficiary or transfers a brand new policy to the charity. Each premium payment is deductible if the donor retains no rights in the policy. So what does it look like? So basically you have the idea where, um, and, and this will be uh, sort of option number one, uh, the, uh, do, uh, the donor creates a new policy or transfers a new policy to the charity. Okay. And then each uh, year, or whenever the premium payment is due, the donor gives a gift to the charity. says, here you go, charity, here's a gift. Now you can make the premium payment on my insurance policy that I gave you or created for you. And then at the death of the donor, the death benefit goes to the charity. Okay? There's a slightly different version in which uh, you uh, make the... That arrow shouldn't be there, sorry. In which you make the premium payments directly to the insurance company. Uh, and the death benefit goes to the uh, goes to the charity. So, um, sorry, this is annoying me. That there, right? So the uh, charity is the owner and the beneficiary. Actually, in both cases, the charity is the owner and the beneficiary. Uh, and the charity has to the the donor can't have any rights in the policy. Uh, all of the rights have to be given to the charity. Otherwise, those are not deductible uh, gifts. Um, but both of these can be deductible gifts. If you're making premium payments to the insurance company for the policy owned by the charity with benefit to the charity, that's deductible. And of course, if you're just giving money directly to the charity uh, for the purpose of them paying those premium payments, that is also uh, deductible. Uh, so those are the basic two structures of how it works. Um, there are some slight differences between the two structures. Um, you know, the, this first structure... <coughs> This is deductible so long as the donor retains no rights in the policy. Uh, it's also uh, deductible in the, uh, in the other uh, scenario. Sorry, that's annoying me. It doesn't go there. Um, and uh, as long as the donor retains no rights in the policy. There are some differences between the two approaches, though. Uh, one difference is here it's just the standard gift receipt. Uh, so the, the uh, charity doesn't have to be particularly sophisticated. They got a check for $1,000. Thanks, here's your gift receipt for $1,000. Um, here it's a little bit more complicated because the charity doesn't actually receive the funds. And since they don't actually, actually receive the funds, then it's a little bit more difficult on how do they issue a gift receipt for something that they're not receiving. Some charities will go the extra mile and they will, once they get confirmation from the insurance company it has been paid on their behalf, They'll go ahead and issue a gift receipt uh, for that, um, but uh, it's it's uh, it's not part of sort of a normal operation of charity uh, to issue these kind of receipts uh, unless they're used to doing a lot of those. So it can just it's just something that has to be worked out in advance uh, what they're going to do with the receipting if they're going to receipt. Uh, here's another advantage: if you do it this way, you could give appreciated property. You don't have to give cash to the charity. You can say, hey, charity, here's, I got a premium payment coming due for $5,000. Here's $5,000 of highly appreciated securities. Uh, sell them, pay the premium. Charity's more than happy to do that. You avoid the capital gains tax. Of course, if you're paying uh, the insurance company directly, um, then you can't do that. 
um, because at least I was consistent with my errors. You can't do that um, because they want uh, a check. They don't want you to sign over stocks, and if you do, then um, it's going to be difficult to um, kind of argue avoiding the whole capital gains tax. Basically, you just have to give you have to give cash. Um, some other differences: if you give directly, the income limitation is uh, for fifty percent uh, for cash gifts. Uh, if you give indirectly, we get this concept that we haven't seen for um, almost a couple of months in here, uh, but it was this old <clears throat> concept of for the use of charity. And if you remember at that time, I said this only applies in two cases, charitable lead trusts and uh, when you're making premium payments to an insurance company for the use of charity. Uh, and the original interpretation of that is that this would limit gifts to 30% of income rather than 50%, even though you're using cash and it's going to a public charity. Now, there are some that say there's some precedent to suggest that old rule may be going away, but it's still um, a potential at this point. All right, so that's the basic deal. Uh, why would you want to do it? Well, let's look at some advantages, um, and then we'll look at some problems. And my problems list is longer because I'm not a big fan of it. But um, why might charities and donors be interested in doing this sort of thing? <clears throat> well, one advantage is that you can take a donor with small income and they can fund a large posthumous project. It's sort of the idea that, you know, I've got a um, normal uh, middle-class uh, working donor uh, and I want to go out and try to sell them funding a... Um, scholarship with a minimum $100,000 at our university. Or I want to fund an endowed chair at half a million dollars. Or I want to fund, uh, you know, wh whatever it might be, some large item. And you say, well, I can't sell that to them. They don't have enough money. Well, they probably have enough money, though, to buy a half million dollar life insurance policy, don't they? Oh, well, yeah, they could do that. You know, they probably have enough money to buy a million dollar life insurance policy, yeah. And so you could go ahead and set this up where they buy this life insurance policy and, uh, and they will get to have their named scholarship fund or their endowed share, something like that. So that's sort of the concept. Donor with a small income can fund a large uh, project. Uh, another advantage for the charity is that rather than trying to you know, get a hold of them and remind them and you know, uh, invite them to a lot of dinners and different things like that, um, the donor just gets a bill from the life insurance company. So you don't have to um, go through the normal donation request process. It's just a bill, and it comes from somebody else, and, you know, pretty straightforward uh, process there. And so that can be attractive to the uh, nonprofit. Uh, and then the final potential advantage is the idea uh, from the nonprofit perspective that they can get insurance agents to be out there selling this concept instead of requiring all the charity fundraiser time. That is, the, uh, um, either the charity convinces life insurance agents, here's a good way to sell clients, or they're buying new insurance, which agents like, and they're benefiting the charity, university, whatever it might be, uh, or the idea uh, sometimes where a, an agent will come to a nonprofit and say, you don't have to do anything, just give us your donor list, we will go out and do all the marketing for you on this product. Okay, so those are the advantages. Um, now we'll talk about some disadvantages. 
One of the disadvantages is that although insurance agents may help to sell, you might get insurance agents that oversell. And maybe they're not as concerned about your long-term donor relationships as you are. Uh, and so you lose control of what's going on there. And you may have donors have a negative experience. Um, so there is a downside to having other people doing your selling for you. Um, another potential problem. Depending on the policy structure, a donor may give for years and years and years and the charity winds up receiving nothing because later the policy lapses, they stop giving, they go into the nursing home, they don't, they don't give anymore and the thing lapses and there's been all these years of writing checks for the benefit of the charity and the charity never gets a dime. So, so that could be annoying for the charity and for the donor as well. There are some policies that um, may not be particularly advantageous uh, and, uh, for the charitable organization. They may be more beneficial for insurance companies and agents uh, than, the, than the charity, depending on po how policies are structured. They can be structured a lot of different ways. They can be expensive or cheap or uh, anywhere in between. And then there's a more technical issue. And this is the concept of insurable interest. Uh, what, do, what do we mean by insurable interest? Well, the deal is this. I can take out a life insurance policy on somebody that I have some uh, family or financial interest in. I can take out a life insurance policy on my spouse. She can take out a life insurance policy on me. I cannot take out a life insurance policy on one of you. Okay? That's sort of a bad idea. Um, because people tend to get killed that way, and so public policy says you just can't take out a life insurance policy on anybody you want to. It's got to be somebody that you have financial interest in or that, you, uh, that you're related to. So there is a real question in some states and in some cases as to whether or not the charity has sufficient financial interest in the donor's life to allow it to take out a new policy of that particular size. Uh, it's not just a matter of saying that, okay, well, you can take out a policy on the, on the life of your donor because it's a donor. Well, if it's a donor that gives you 50 bucks a year, and then you have an agent that goes out and sells them a million-dollar policy, is that really a legitimate insurable interest for that charity uh, to say, oh, yeah, we have an insurable interest to have a million-dollar policy on this person that's given us $50 for three years in a row? There's a question. The reason we care about that question is because if it ever turns out that a court says there wasn't insurable interest, um, then everything blows up. There's no tax deduction, and in fact, the insurance company can even say we're not going to pay the death benefit because there was, there was not reasonable uh, insurable interest here. So that's kind of an open question in some cases. Another potential problem, the charity, in many cases, would really just prefer that you write the check to them and not go through this whole insurance thing um, and so that they can use the money today. Um, not all charities are like that, but 99 point some percent probably would prefer you just write the check to them. It's another potential problem. Yeah, you can fund this big result, but of course the donor never gets to see it because the donor's got to die before that money comes through and before any of the impact gets to be seen. So that's kind of a downside. And here's a real problem from the nonprofit perspective. It's the idea that in most donors' mind, if they are making a gift 
to pay a premium. They're going to make less of a gift or perhaps no gift at all uh, to support the charity in other ways. So it is unlikely to be the case that this, uh, it, this, these ongoing premiums are simply found money for the charity. It's probably going to be that the donor feels that's their way of supporting them rather than to be giving those same dollar amounts directly to the charity. So there's this question of cannibalization, that it may be that you're losing at least some amount of ongoing gift income because people are making these premium payments to you. How can you deal with that some, uh, or deal with some of these problems? Uh, probably the most successful programs uh, are programs where the charity takes control of the situation. How can the charity take control of the situation? Well, the one lever that the charity has is they can refuse to accept the gift. Okay? The, the, you can have something set up by a donor, donor's life, uh, life insurance agent says, here we go, we're going to give you this, and then the donor's going to make these payments. The charity can say, nope, we will not accept that policy. Uh, and some of the most successful programs uh, are successful because that's what they do. Um, and this example comes from Auburn University, which has a successful program, and it is based upon the idea that if the policy does not meet their guidelines, they don't want it. They say, no, we will not accept that gift. Uh, what kind of policy meets their guidelines? Well, it has to have a relatively short term to projected paid up status. In other words, we want a policy that that person pays on for 8, 10, 12 years that they're going to be done. We don't want to have a policy where somebody who's 60 years old takes out a term policy, they're paying every year, and we've got to go back to them when they're 85 and in the nursing home and try to convince them to make that premium payment because you know, this thing is going to lapse. Basically, we don't want to be doing that. So we will only accept policies that within a reasonably short period of time are going to get paid up or at least projected to be paid up with reasonable interest rates. The idea there is that we can close it it's done, we know we're going to get a gift, and we can move on to ask the donor for support in other areas at that point. Um, they also require that the projected paid-up status lasts till age 80. Some um, uh, policy illustrations will, be, will get paid-up status to, to age 80 instead of to age 100, and the point is, well, you know, a third of these people are going to live past age 80 if they're already like 60 years old or something like that, um, and so they require you know, a little bit higher uh, premiums to make sure that this person is going to be paid up, um, projected to be paid up at least till age eight, uh, 100. They require top companies, a uh, certain level of ratings, and reasonable interest rate projections. And what that means is that you're getting to the point where you're not having, where you're uh, not projected to have to pay any premium amounts um, using reasonable interest rates, not, not using particularly high uh, interest rates. And the way that they do this is if it doesn't meet their guidelines, they say no. Now, this is something that is sort of uh, anathema for most charities. Somebody wants to give you something, why would you ever say no? It has some value. Well, the reason that you say no is because if that donor is paying those premiums every year, thinking that they're doing that for the purpose of benefiting you, and if they're doing it through a policy that 
is most likely not to wind up giving you much benefit, then it's not a free gift because you've got a donor who would probably be benefiting you in other ways, but instead they're paying these premiums and um, you're, you're, it's, it's, uh, uh, it's, it's, not, it's not free. You're winding up costing and it's better just to say uh, no for two reasons. One, maybe they don't give you the policy, maybe they don't go through that, but more likely they get a policy that conforms to your guidelines. So you get something that you're more comfortable with at least is going to um, get paid up relatively short period of time, and there will be some benefit uh, at the end of the at the end of the life to the charitable organization. Okay, okay so those are the basic three common uses of uh, of uh, life insurance and wealth replacement, uh, gifting existing policies, creating new policies for the charity.